So who needs to be thinking about estate planning typically? Well, anyone that could die, um, which by <laughs> definition means anyone. Uh, but there are definitely people that are in need of it more urgently than others. Welcome to Elements of Styles, the business podcast that trades in scarce thinking for community, conversation, and ideas in abundance. Each week, I, Mark Styles, sit with professionals and entrepreneurs, both local and global, and learn how they each add value to their communities, their partners, and their teams. Please enjoy. Hey, folks, welcome back to Elements of Styles. Today, I'm grateful to have Ben Cote. Ben is an attorney with Styles Law and focuses primarily on estate planning. Hey, Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, what is estate planning? Yeah, so estate planning can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. But at a fundamental level, we're thinking about what happens to our stuff when we pass away, what happens to our loved ones when we pass away, and how do we make sure that we're taken care of if we lose capacity towards the end of our life. So who needs to be thinking about estate planning typically? Well, anyone that could die, um, which <laughs> by definition means anyone. Uh, but there are definitely people that are in need of it more urgently than others. So age is a good proxy for how badly or how desperately you need to think about estate planning. Um, so the older you are statistically, the more likely you are to need it. Uh, but people with young children, uh, it's an important consideration because we can also think about guardianship. So who's going to take care of your kids if you're not there to take care of them? And that question can be answered both physically, so who's going to get custody, uh, but also financially. Who's going to make sure that there's food on the table, uh, that they're getting their education, that they get their clothes, making sure that they have what they need to survive and thrive. So what happens if they do nothing and something tragic happens? Uh, great question. So the doing nothing is always a valid estate planning option. And what we think about is the rules of intestacy. So the state has passed laws, uh, which essentially say what happens if somebody doesn't have a will or a trust in place when they pass. And generally, it goes to family members. Um, so if you're married with no kids uh, and no parents, it goes to your spouse. If you're married and have parents, half to the spouse, half to the parents. If you are married and have kids, but it's a blended family, a portion goes to the spouse, portion goes to the kids. So it's a complicated question to answer. But um, really what happens is you look at the statute and say, okay, what is your family situation? Those are the people that actually receive your, your estate. So when it comes to planning, without a plan, you're allowing the state to plan for you. Yeah, that's right. Um, but for some clients, or I guess non-clients, uh, they get to the end and they say, well, I don't have any kids. I don't have a spouse. The people that I want to receive my estate are the people that would receive it. I don't really see the need in having a will. And I think that's valid. Um, but we're missing an opportunity to think about other things, including powers of attorney, healthcare proxies, um, other things that go into a well-rounded estate plan. And maybe they don't want to give their estate to people. Maybe they want to give it to charity, and that's not going to happen without a plan. Right. And it's not an all or nothing question. So you don't have to leave everything to a charity. You don't have to leave everything to people. You can... Uh, find a happy medium. So a lot of people will leave money to their alma mater. Maybe they'll leave it to their church. Maybe there's a charity that they were involved with during their life or the mission speaks to them. They'll leave a portion of it 
to a portion of their estate to that charity, even if they um, maybe they don't have people in their life that they necessarily want to give their estate to. That makes a lot of sense. So let me ask you this. You've practiced in a number of areas of the law. Why do you enjoy working in the estate planning space so much? Well, I think there's really two answers to that question. The first one is it's a puzzle. So the thing I enjoy about it is sitting down with people, learning about their particular family situation, thinking through their goals, some of their challenges, and coming up with a plan that kind of achieves that mix of uh, goals, but also being flexible. So it scratches the itch for doing something that's intellectually stimulating. Um, but probably more important is you feel a great sense that you're helping people. And it's probably most apparent when you're planning with somebody that has a very serious diagnosis. Uh, so I've recently worked with a couple of people that had uh, pretty heavy cancer diagnoses. And uh, you, there's a palpable relief that sets in when somebody actually sits down, signs their plan and has, has all their affairs in order. Um, so I get a sense that I'm helping people uh, while also uh, finding it interesting, uh, which I think is kind of a, a really great combination for something you're going to do every day. That's nice, purposeful work there. I, I, I appreciate that. Now, let's let's talk about the planning itself a little bit. You mentioned creating, being creative, documenting. What exactly are you doing when you sit down with somebody? Sure. So when I sit down with somebody, they've already taken the time to fill out a questionnaire. So I have a snapshot, and it, that's all it is. It's a snapshot in time, and it's not super detailed. Basically, I understand where they live some of the basics of what they own and who's in their family. But that's really the beginning of the conversation because every family is different. Sometimes I'll talk to people and they say, my kids are so close, they're best friends, um, they're all medical doctors, they're rocket scientists, whatever. Then I have other clients that maybe their family doesn't get along. Uh, maybe there are some problems with divorcing spouses. Maybe there's some substance abuse or money handling issues. So every time we sit down, it's kind of a discovery question. How do we, uh, how do I get enough information to understand what your challenges are so that we can best achieve your goals? And so we'll sit down, talk through those things. And then while I'm getting that information, I'm going through um, kind of like a decision tree. Okay, does this person at a very high level, would this person benefit from a trust or is a will going to satisfy what they need to get done? All right, if we're going to go with a trust, what kind of trust? What are the types of provisions that we might want to plan for to account for these unique features of everyone's individual family? Um, all the way down to specific decisions about who's going to be the trustee. How do independent trustees get appointed? How is a trustee removed? So it's it's a branching tree and lots of decisions. And most of them I don't ever bring up with the client. Um, it's just something that I'm going through and making a mental note. This is what I think would be a good fit. And then I'm able to present to them what I think uh, is their best option. Uh, and most of the time, people completely agree and say, this is exactly what I had in mind. Help us understand the difference between will planning and trust planning. Sure. So to understand will planning, you really have to understand probate. Uh, so I'm going to take a little bit of a detour, but uh, probate is simply the process of bringing a will to the court and asking the court to make a couple of determinations. One, that the will is valid. 
and should be admitted to probate. And two, that the personal representative that's petitioning to be appointed, we used to call them executors, now they're personal reps, that they're a good fit and they're the person that's named in the will. So a will is helpful because it allows us to modify those default rules that we were talking about before. So we call those rules the rules of intestacy. If we don't want our assets to go to that particular person that would be defined under the statute, we're able to name particular people or charities in our will to actually receive our estate. But that would have to go through probate versus a trust plan is a contract that goes outside of the court system. That's exactly right. So probate, the primary purpose is to receive the will, name a personal representative. It takes about a year, a year to 18 months because there's a creditor claim period. Um, it's public facing, so everyone gets to read your documents, and it's generally expensive. We have filing fees. The legal fees are generally more expensive. And so the other option uh, is something called trust planning. And uh, kind of, again, taking a little bit of a detour, trusts are a legal entity that are created. There's three people involved. There's a settler, there's a trustee, and there's a beneficiary. So the settler is the person that creates the trust, and they retain certain rights. So they retain, in most cases, they retain the right to revoke, amend, or restate the trust. They also reserve the right uh, to make other decisions uh, with respect to the trust. The trustee is the person that manages the assets. So you can think of them kind of like the president of a corporation. The president doesn't actually own the assets, but they're actually the ones that are signing checks, making investment decisions, uh, and so on. And then the beneficiary, you can think of them like the shareholder of a corporation. They're the person that actually owns the, the equity in the trust or the, the estate. Uh, so the benefit of a trust is it doesn't have to go through probate because trust can't die. We don't have that threshold question of these assets are owned by this person. They've died. We now have to determine where they go. The trust simply says the trustee that was uh, serving before, which is usually the client that passed away, who steps in? We look to the trust and we'll have backups named or a way to appoint a backup. Uh, and so what the upshot of that is we can avoid the entire probate process. So it's completely private. Uh, there's less likelihood that somebody's going to file a lawsuit or an objection because we're not already in court. Um, we save the filing fees and the hard costs. We save attorney's fees. And generally, we don't have that same length of process. We're not at 12 to 18 months. We're probably closer to six months because really all we have to do is file our estate tax return, uh, pay bills as we see them and uh, make distributions under the terms of the trust, whether they're outright or over time. So with trust planning, it's really not a one-size-fits-all. It's really a one-size-fits-one, and you get to be creative and can kind of document to the world what you want to see going forward and be really specific and purposeful with that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, because we've gone through that discovery process during the questionnaire and that initial conversation, we're able to say, well, maybe there's an ongoing need to have the trustee decide when and if the assets go to the beneficiary. So common example would be there's somebody that maybe is 20 years old. They haven't really demonstrated a lot of maturity with finances uh, and maybe in life in general. And the parent of that adult child might say, you know what, I'm really concerned that they're going to get this money and blow it. Uh, or worse, they could actually hurt themselves with it. So we can get really purposeful and say, okay, for this particular beneficiary, we want these sets of rules, or we want the trustee to distribute assets over time with these stipulations. 
which really isn't possible with a will. You can do a testamentary trust, but generally you're getting the worst of both worlds uh, because you still have to go through probate, but then you have probate court oversight over the trust. Um, so generally speaking, traditional trust plan where we're uh, creating what's called an inter vivos trust, so one that's creating during the person's lifetime, um, that is usually the best option when we want to get creative, have ongoing restrictions, maybe have some strings attached uh, with respect to money going different places. Um, and it really allows us to tailor the or tailor the documents to the client's particular situation. So that's really helpful. What when you're doing a trust planning or an estate planning, what other documents are you focusing in on for people? Yep. So the trust really only deals with the assets, and that's only maybe half of the equation. We're also thinking about how do we take care of the person that's actually doing this estate planning? How do we make sure that if they lose capacity, if they're sick or they're in some uh, accident, that they're actually cared for towards the end of their life or maybe even the, the middle of their life when they're temporarily not able to make decisions themselves? So we think about a power of attorney. Um, so that's a document that allows the person to make um, uh, legal decisions on behalf of the signer. Um, so we think about a healthcare proxy. So that could be, or it is a document that allows uh, your trusted individual to make medical decisions if you're unable to make them yourself. We already talked a little bit about guardianship nominations. Uh, so if you have a minor child and you want to um, kind of explain to the court who you think should be their legal guardian, um, we think about uh, living wills. So this is a very narrow area in the healthcare context, but what do we want end of life to look like? If we have a terminal diagnosis, do we want our healthcare proxy to continue fighting at all costs and make decisions that align with that strategy? Or do we want to say, I want life-sustaining treatment to stop and I want to be made comfortable? So we can get as detailed as people are comfortable with. Um, but really, at the end of the day, we're thinking about how do we make sure that uh, this person is protected if they're not able to make decisions for themselves? So while they're alive, so part of estate planning is planning for things that may happen while they're alive, not simply after they die. Right. And again, there's a default situation that happens if we don't do that sort of planning. Uh, and it's a guardianship or a conservatorship through the probate court. And uh, those have similar negatives. We're going through court, it's expensive, um, and there's an ongoing reporting requirement. So the court um, they're really the principle is they're uncomfortable suspending somebody's right to make legal or medical decisions on their own. And so they want to be really sure. So they require a clinician's report. They require uh, accountings to the court. Um, there's a lot of oversight that adds both time and expense uh, that a lot of people can avoid with a simple power of attorney and a healthcare proxy. Um, so uh, doing nothing is an option, um, but in for most people, it's not a good one. In your experience, why do people do nothing? Why is it that people procrastinate or or delay this this planning? I think I'm going to put on my uh, psychologist hat for a second. Uh, I have no qualification for it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to anxiety and procrastination. So talking about these really serious situations in a person's life can cause them to get a little bit nervous. And I think that's completely normal. Um, just like thinking about going to the gym, uh, going to the doctor, balancing your checkbook, all those things can be a little scary. And I think that causes a lot of people to say, well, I'm just going to put this off. I'll be fine. 
Um, I'll do that next year. And so that's kind of one of the big reasons. The other one is simple procrastination. Uh, what's more fun, uh, going into the lawyer's office and talking about your ultimate demise uh, or kind of forgetting about it, maybe watching a movie, going out with friends, something like that. So it's you have to um, it can feel like you're kind of taking your medicine, so to speak. Um, but what a lot of people have told me at the end of our meetings is that, oh, that, that wasn't bad at all. That was actually kind of fun. And I know it sounds like it's not true, but I have actually had people tell me that. Um, and it's because you can get to the end and you say, well, it's really not that scary. It's just a series of questions. Do we want to do this or that? Do we want to do this or that? What's your most important goal? What's the thing you're most worried about? And then at the end, you're like, okay, now I don't need to worry about it for a few years until I go back to look at it. I'm sure there's a sense of relief too, right? Because if you're procrastinating something and it's lingering and lingering and you finally complete that task, it, it must feel fun. It must feel relieving. But I would imagine that a lot of people also procrastinate because it's such a daunting task. There's so much to do, the time, the delay, the getting back. Can you help explain the process that you engage with clients, whether they're introduced to you through the financial professionals or they're introduced to you some other way? How does it go from the initial introduction to you to signing your documents? Yeah, so we're a little bit different. And I think uh, I'm actually really proud of that. So it's easy to kind of go with the herd and do exactly what everyone else is doing. But we do things a little bit differently. So we'll send out an online questionnaire to our potential client. And really, just like I said before, we're looking for names, addresses, uh, basic financial information, family structure, things like that. Usually it takes about 10 minutes to finish. And as soon as they're done, uh, as soon as the potential client is done, they are actually able to schedule their first meeting right at that time. So we're about 10 minutes in and they've already given us all the information or most of the information we need from a uh, kind of biography perspective. And they've also scheduled their meeting. So pretty painless. Um, we like to get clients or potential clients in uh, relatively quickly. So uh, we're, we're flexible to get people in and our first meeting is always complimentary. So, uh, and the reason for that is I want people to understand that if they talk to me and they're like, I'm not ready to do this, or uh, this doesn't feel right, or I'm still nervous, there's going to be no pressure from us. And I think that's really one of the key things in doing this type of work. You have to take people where they are and really understand what's motivating them and might, what might be demotivating them. So kind of relieving that pressure can be really helpful. So we're now at our meeting. We've talked a little bit about the discovery process that goes on. Um, and one of the things I love about doing this work is actually getting to teach people. Um, so a lot of the meeting we spend talking about concepts like just like we did here. What is, what is a trust? What's a will? What is probate? Um, so it's kind of an interesting area where people come in and say, I know I need this thing, but I don't really know a lot about it. Um, so being able to kind of explain the basics of it is really important, but you also can't explain everything. Um, it takes years to kind of understand the ins and outs of all these different rules. So you have to be really selective. How do I explain this in 45 minutes or an hour so that they have a functional understanding of what they need to do uh, without overwhelming the person? Um, so we have our meeting. We uh, I will always present a uh, a proposal or a, uh, a recommendation, and I always give a quote at the table. So a lot of firms, they'll say, well, we'll get back to you and we'll send you a letter. 
I uh, I like to have the quote right at that first meeting, and I like to explain exactly what we're going to do and exactly how much it's going to cost. So in terms of cost, we do everything on a flat fee basis. Um, I think hourly fees can be good in some particular edge cases if we're talking about maybe revising documents or something that's kind of unusual, like maybe we're setting up a charity or something. Uh, but for the vast majority of people, we can we have a good idea of how much work it's going to take and we uh, give them a flat fee quote, um, which makes them comfortable because they're saying, well, I'm not going to get hit with crazy fees if I ask questions, if I ask for revisions, uh, if this kind of takes a little bit longer than usual. I'm confident that I'm not going to get this really unknown bill, which is another anxiety point. People don't know what it's going to cost, and they don't um, they don't necessarily want to get a giant bill in the mail. From that point, uh, we commit to having the documents back to them within 10 days, which again is pretty unusual. Most attorneys, it can take weeks or months to get their first draft if they see a draft at all uh, before the signing. And the other thing that's unusual is we actually pick a signing date at our first meeting. So I would say better than 95% of people by the end say, I know exactly what I want. I like the proposal that you're making. I feel comfortable to move forward. And they'll actually schedule their signing right at that, at that moment. And we usually pick a date that's about four weeks in the future. So working backwards, we have 10 days to get the documents to you, which leaves about 20 days to review the documents. Um, and the other things that we do that are a little bit different is I highlight the sections that I think are most important. So um, of the maybe 150 pages that we're going to generate, you might have to read through 10 or 15 pages to really get a good understanding of what the documents do and the decisions that were entered that are kind of non-standard language. In addition to that, I prepare a video. Um, so I go through the document and I say, this is what this section does. This is what this section does. These are the people you've selected. And I send that to the client uh, with their drafts, paper copy, and they get an electronic copy. Um, again, so that they can review it, they can watch that as many times as they want and really get comfortable with the documents. Um, and sometimes people come and say, well, I have a question about this, or I've thought about it and I want to change my mind, which is totally fine. It's all included in the fee. By the time we sit down at the table, there really are no revisions. There are no questions because people have had an opportunity to ask me as many questions as they want, review the video, review the paper copy. And we have a lot of fun at the signing. Uh, we've are cracking jokes, talking about what we're going to do over the weekend. Um, it's actually kind of, it's like you're hitting the finish line at a race um, where people are like, actually, that wasn't that hard of a race. Um, it's it it's a very manageable process, and a lot of people really have that sense of relief when they get to the end. And they have fun. So, so now you have these documents, but what do you do with the documents then? So how do you make them really effectuate what the plan was meant to do? Yeah, so... It's kind of a crude analogy, but I like to think of a trust like a bucket. Uh, so it's in one sense like a company, uh, but in the other sense, it's just like a simple bucket. And the trust is only effective with whatever you put in it. So our task is, it's called funding. Um, and anyone that sets up a trust should engage in this. And you basically go through all the assets that you have and say, which of these should go into the name of the trust? And if they don't go into the name of the trust, how do we identify the proper beneficiary designation? So things like cash accounts, so we're thinking bank accounts, uh, money market accounts, we want to make sure that those are in the name of the trust so that when you pass away, they can be distributed as part of the trust property. But one thing we haven't talked about is tax planning mm -hmm. um, and making sure that the trust is funded is crucial to get the tax advantage uh, that a lot of people are looking for with their trust planning. Um, same thing is true with mortgage 
uh, I'm sorry, um, brokerage accounts with retirement accounts. We want to make sure that they're either funded in the trust or we're naming a beneficiary so that we can stay out of probate. And then, of course, the house, right? The homes that they may own, they want to fund those by deeding those into the trust, into the bucket. Right, exactly. So um, in Massachusetts, we, of course, will take care of any um, real estate. And for real estate that's outside of Massachusetts, we counsel with local attorneys in those states and will help to actually transfer the property into the trust. What happens if they want to then refinance their property? Does it become a problem for them? Yeah. So one of the interesting things about our firm is that we have a lot of experience with real estate. And so I'm very careful to create plans that comply with Fannie Mae guidelines. So if you look at a lot of other estate planning attorneys work, they'll sometimes put together a nominee trust, um, which there are reasons to do it, uh, which I won't get into here, but they'll set up a problem uh, where when the person goes to refinance, the lender says, I can't do it because it doesn't comply with these guidelines. Um, I'm always careful to say, if this person refinanced, how do I make it as seamless as possible? And one of the things that we do that's a little bit different is I actually put together a letter when the per when the package is signed that explains why this is compliant with Fannie Mae guidelines and why uh, the lender should be comfortable and the closing attorney on that refinance should be able to move forward without doing anything, um, which uh, I think is very impactful. I don't have anyone contact me and say, hey, can you change this around? Can we can we fix this? Um, it's just not an issue we run into, which is pretty unusual. A lot of having that experience in real estate, there are a lot of trusts that do fail Fannie Mae review. Right. And we see that from the real estate practice when we're asked to review the trusts. So that's that's a super helpful benefit to the to the consumer, to the client. So, Ben, let me ask you this. Really helpful, really knowledgeable. Appreciate you explaining this to us. But when someone is introduced, they go through the experience with the team they sign those documents and they say, you know what, I feel really good about this. I'm going to go on Facebook. I'm going to go on Google and I'm going to write out a review about Ben and his team. What does that review look like? Yeah. So what I hope that review is going to look like is the, the team was very knowledgeable. They were able to answer our questions. Um, they kept us updated on the file. They did things when they said they were going to. So whether that's drafting the document or meeting us for signing or getting back to us with uh, answers to questions. Um, but I think the biggest compliment that we receive is, oh, um, when I'm meeting with somebody, I always say, oh, how'd you hear about us? And uh, they say, oh, well, my brother did their estate plan and they said, you're great. And so that's really the true mark of I'm doing my job correctly. If somebody feels so good about it that they're willing to refer a family member or friend, that to me is the best compliment I can get. Absolutely. That's great. That's great. So Ben, one of the questions we always ask our guests on this show, because podcasting is a little bit outside the comfort zone, not uh, everyone is doing them. It's a little early adopting and we appreciate people putting themselves out there and sharing their knowledge with people. But another getting comfortable, being uncomfortable uh, experience is karaoke. And um, we've got over 100 guests now on our show here, and we're hoping to get them all together at some point to do some networking and enjoy each other's like-minded, uh, their like-mindedness, truly. Uh, but on tap would be karaoke. Karaoke. 
Ben Cody, you're next on the stage. What are you singing, buddy? So that it's re a really interesting question. I've been thinking about it and <laughs> it's tempting to pick your favorite song, but that's not really the question. The question is, what is something that the room is going to enjoy mm. that's within your capabilities? Um, so I think uh, I couldn't decide between something by Steve Miller, which is a classic kind of 70s, um, easy, fun songs to sing. Um, but I think I'm going to go with Piano Man by Billy Joel, ah. uh, because karaoke traditionally is in a bar. Everyone knows the words. It's a fun song. And uh while Billy Joel definitely has some great pipes, I think it's something that's accessible for somebody that isn't a professional singer. Well, because you'll probably get a lot of crowd support too, right? Like you say, everybody knows it. You can almost visualize them putting their arms around each other and singing along with you. It's a great, great right. choice. I mean, the other option would be like um, Don't Stop Believing" by Journey. Um, something that everyone knows and it's like it hits that chord with, oh yeah, this is fun. I yeah. remember this from kind of closing down a bar i love it i love it so the most important question of them all ben somebody listens to this they want to get involved they want to connect with your team how do they do that yep so we are available uh by phone or email so uh if you're interested you can call our office at 781-319-1900 or they can uh, shoot me an email my email address is bcote at styles-law.com um, and once they reach out to us we start sending them the information and that link to the questionnaire uh, really painless and really easy to get the process started and folks that information will be in the show notes along with the um, specific website styles-estates.com that ben built out again for educational purposes the consumers that are confident and that are happy are the ones that are informed and and fully understand the process. Ben, appreciate you very much taking your time out to help educate folks and uh, and and share your experience with us. Yeah, my pleasure. It was fun, folks. This has been another exciting episode of Elements of Styles. If you learned something, if you think that somebody might enjoy this or learn something from it, please share it with them or share it with everybody. Thank you and be well. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice for a new episode each week and share this with everyone and anyone. If you have any questions or comments or have an idea for another guest, feel free to shoot me an email at mstyles at styles-law.com. That's M-S-T-I-L-E-S at styles-law.com. And if you are a real estate professional, be sure to check us out on our private exclusive Facebook page, The Real Estate School at 892 for content and Massachusetts continuing education opportunities. Be well, folks. Today's episode is sponsored by Securitidal. Securitidal helps Massachusetts real estate attorneys, real estate agents, loan professionals, buyers, and sellers with all of their title, settlement, and escrow needs. Securitidal, S-E-C-U-R-I-T-I-T-L-E.com, where security and title come together. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Please seek legal, 
financial, or tax advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.